Okay, today we'll be reading from Psalm 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and song of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a leer, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm the pastor here at Wingfoot Church. It's good to have you with us if you're part of our church family, uh, if you're joining us for baptisms, or you're just checking us out for the first time. Uh, we've been in a series called God a Refuge, exploring uh, the songs in the middle of the Bible uh, that talk about what it's like to experience God. Uh, what is it like to follow God? What is it like to know God? Uh, this thing that's often pretty intangible. Uh, the Psalms give us some really good language for how to describe that. Uh, I, kind of the most significant encounter that I have had with God uh, happened when I was 14. Uh, now, there's a lot of things that are happening when you're 14, uh, but I uh, grew up, you know, I grew up uh, pastor's kids. I grew up in church. I grew up aware of uh, Christianity. I, I would even say I professed faith in Jesus at a really early age, uh, but it was at the age of 14 on a Thursday night at a Christian summer camp uh, that I experienced the tangible presence of God. Uh, now, that sounds really, like, cool when someone says that. Like, it sounds a little bit mystical, and you're like, what is that like? I don't really know how to describe it. Uh, I know what was going on in my body. I had goosebumps. I had kind of weeping. I, I was, like, overwhelmed with the sense that God was there. 
Uh, and I also, at the same time, had this sense of conviction uh, that God is there, and that means that there's some stuff that I have to deal with in my own life. Uh, and so that night, uh, the Thursday night at that camp, I remember uh, confessing some things and committing myself to following Jesus for the rest of my life. Uh, chances are, if you're a follower of Jesus uh, for any amount of time, you maybe can look back on your journey and see a couple moments like that. A couple moments where it just seemed very clear and obvious that God was real and that he was there. Maybe it was a, a really uh, intimate moment of prayer. Uh, maybe it was a, a time of worship that you just kind of really sensed God's joy and his presence. Maybe it was a, a time in community or a time when you went through something difficult and you experienced God taking care of you through that season. You might be here and you might be curious about the way of Jesus. You're kind of exploring Jesus. You're in, the, in church on Sunday, so you must have some interest in who Jesus is. And maybe part of your hesitation is you're waiting for a moment just like that. Right? You, you, you're waiting for a moment where it just feels like God is there. Something to confirm your curiosity or your interest in who Jesus is. You're waiting for a moment where the skies open up and you just feel like God is there. And I hope that if you are curious about the way of Jesus, that you have a moment like that. I think moments like that are part of how God draws us to himself, how he confirms his goodness to us, how he moves us forward in our journey. Uh, but the reality is that most of our lives are spent between the mountain and the valley. What I mean by that is if you look through the story of the Bible, uh, there are mountaintop moments where people have experiences with God. Moses has a mountaintop moment. Elijah has a mountaintop moment. Abraham has a mountaintop moment. Uh, there are valley moments where everything is falling apart and everything is difficult and everything seems like it's just coming to an end. You see this in the story of the Bible. That's why the Bible is trustworthy, because it talks about our experience in a very realistic kind of way. But the other thing that the Bible shows us is that most of life is not spent in the mountaintop in kind of exuberant, excited joy or in the depths of despair, but somewhere in the confusing middle, what the Bible calls the wilderness. And in the wilderness, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but it's not necessarily easy. It's not necessarily clear. I know what God has said. I know what he has commanded me to do. I know the general direction that he has asked me to go, but it is the mundane, everyday, ordinary faithfulness that is difficult. But the reality is that if you read through the storyline of the Bible, it is in the wilderness that God does his most important work. It's in the wilderness moments of life when your character is being formed, when your habits are being formed, right? where in the day-to-day -day routine of my life and following Jesus, that God is doing his most important work, but oftentimes when I don't feel it, when I don't necessarily feel like he's doing something. And so this morning, I want to look at what happens in that wilderness space, right? When you're between the mountaintop experience and the valley, when you're just in the everyday ordinary stuff of life, and you begin to feel like God is absent. Because the reality is, in the Psalms in particular, there is this sense that there are times in our life when it feels like, yes, I believe in God, yes, I'm seeking after God, but it feels like he's left me. Or he is off doing something else, caring for someone else, and you're kind of left in the confusion of, is God really there, even if I don't feel him? And so this morning, I want this to be an encouragement if you are following Jesus and you're in one of those spaces where it just feels like God isn't there. 
Maybe you're just feeling really dry and discouraged. I want you to know that God hasn't given up on you. And that he is, in fact, doing something. And if you are interested in the way of Jesus, I want you to have a realistic picture of what faith actually is. And oftentimes we have this sense that faith in following Jesus is like a dark stage with lights and I'm holding my hands up and my eyes are closed in passionate worship. That's part of following Jesus. But oftentimes faith looks more like I'm following Jesus even when it doesn't make sense. And that's what we find in Psalm 42 and 43. I want to encourage you to, if you have your Bible, whether it's a book, a phone, a scroll, open it up to chapter 42 of the Psalms. If you have a scroll this morning, I want to meet you. Because I'm really curious and I'm a nerd. All right, so Psalm 42 and 43, these are actually, this is one whole song that has been divided up. We know this because as you were listening to Timothy read it, uh, you heard the same chorus three times. So three times as the writer of this song is processing his experience, he comes back to this one central idea. But I want you to see the context of what is happening here. We're going to look through these two psalms and see kind of three movements that happen when you're going through a season of dryness, when it feels like God isn't there, when it feels like he's abandoned you or left you, what is God actually doing? And so you'll see in chapter 42, verse 1, it says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now there's something in us that says, aw, that's a really cute, like that's a Thomas Kincaid picture. This is a crisis. There is a, a, something is happening. This deer is panting. That means it's rushing, right? It's in a hurry. There's something pursuing it. And it comes to a stream, and yet the language tells us that that stream is dried up. So it's come to where it expects water, and instead of finding water, it finds nothing but a dry riverbed. And then it says this, that's what my soul is doing for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So he is looking for God. And yet he is finding that God is not there. He's not there where he expected him to be. And so this is a crisis moment. What am I going to do when I go looking for God and I find that he's not there? You see, in my experience, when I was 14, when I made that commitment at that moment, I had that connection with God. About a couple months later, uh, you know, I was in high school, and so I was making bad decisions, just going through some hard times. I began to look back at that experience and say, what actually was that? Was that just like the music was just right? Was I just exhausted from four days of Christian summer camp? What was actually going on? It begins to create a crisis where I'm not sure what I believed then. And so what I did, and what you might tend to do, is I decided I need to go back. And so the next year, I went back to that camp. I made sure that I was in the same row, at the same seat, on Thursday night, ready and waiting for God to meet me right there. I even went out to the shore afterwards just to see, God, are you going to show up here? This is where you showed up last time, and so this is where you're going to show up this time. And what did I find? It felt like a dry riverbed. You see, this is what you and I tend to do. We tend to think that, you know, if God has worked this way in the past, then, then I need to go back there, and he's going to work that way as if God is just kind of a robot always doing the same kinds of things. But what is he discovering? He's discovering that this God is a living God. He's a dynamic God. He is a 
personal God. He is a God who is actively on the move. Now, his character never changes, but how he works in my life and how he wants to work in your life is going to change. He's going to do some things in us and through us that means that I'm not the same person I was last year, and so God is going to do something new in me this year. Now, this is really important. Look at verse 4 of, of chapter 42. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. This is like exuberant worship, emotional worship. He is having, this is, he's remembering his mountaintop high, that moment that it felt like God was there, and he's finding himself not there. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here's the important thing that he does. When he begins to experience that sense that God isn't there, that God isn't answering my prayers, I don't feel goosebumps when I'm singing worship. I don't feel like he's there when I'm opening up the scripture. Notice what he does. He turns inward and he says, what's going on, soul? What's going on inside of me? You see, what you and I tend to do is when it feels like God is not there, or when I feel spiritually discouraged or spiritually dry or like God is not answering my prayers, I don't do that. I tend to assume that something is wrong with God. That God is doing something, that God has somehow failed me. I don't tend to look inward and say, hold on a second, there's maybe some things inside of me that aren't quite in alignment, and so maybe God wants me to do something inside. I often look outside and say, God's failed. And you see, we live in a culture that values authenticity above all else, which means that if it feels good, it must be true. And if it makes me feel happy, then it must be right. And oftentimes we import that into the journey of faith and say, well, if I feel the closeness of God, then he must be there. But when I don't feel the closeness of God, he must not be there. But instead, this psalmist says, no, when I feel that the riverbed has dried up, when I feel the absence of God, it doesn't mean God has failed. It just means that there are some things inside me that need to be worked out. There are some things that I need to deal with, some expectations that I have of who God is. Because after all, God is the living God, not the God of my imagination. And that's really important to get because oftentimes what happens when I experience some dryness or I experience some discouragement or I don't feel like God is there, it's not that God isn't there. It's that my expectations of what him being there are are not in alignment with reality. Oftentimes I expect God to do what I want him to do on my terms when I want him, but he is the living God, which means that I need to orient myself around him. See, oftentimes we're very narcissistic in our spirituality, right? That, that it's all about me. It's just all about me. And so if I'm going through a hard time, that means God must have failed me. If I'm going through a difficult time, that means God must have quit. God is bigger than you are, right? He is doing more than just what I can see. And so he puts his hope in the living God, which shatters his imagination about who God is. So are you looking for the real God who is, or the God of your ideas and your imagination. See, the reality is, you know that it's the real God when the real God sometimes disagrees with you. When he sometimes challenges you or convicts you. If your God always agrees with you, then you have made a God out of yourself. 
And he says, no, I put my hope in the living God. And so the second movement then, as he begins to wrestle with God's absence and he looks inward, in verses 6 through 11, he begins to be overwhelmed by the bigness of this God. Look at verse 7. Uh, sorry, verse 6, actually. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Now, if you knew the geography, this is ancient Near East in Israel. The Jordan River was the most significant river at that time, kind of like our Cuyahoga River. Uh, it found its source in Mount Hermon. In other words, what he is saying is, I need to go back to the beginning. I need to go back to the source. If, if God isn't actually there, then, then what is it that God, who is this God that I'm thinking of? Who is this God that I'm seeking? And so he goes back to the very beginning to say, who is this God? And what he discovers overwhelms him. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, if you are uh, an ancient Hebrew speaker, this, the way that this is written is actually intended to make you hear water rushing. Like the cadence and the language, if, if I could speak it, I can't speak it, but it, you would hear like the waves crashing over him in the very language of the text. And notice the source of these waves. Notice the source of what is overwhelming him. It's not his circumstances. It's not his sin. The source of these waves is God himself. The language is as if he is drowning in the bigness of God. It even has reference to Genesis 1-2. In Genesis 1-2, nothing existed, and it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Deep calls to deep. He can't get to the bottom of this God. Oftentimes what God is doing when we go through a season when we're experiencing his absence is he wants to blow our view of him out of the water. He wants us to see him not as, as kind of something that we can control, but as something that I need to get in alignment with. That, that he is way bigger than I had imagined him to be, and so he needs to shatter my mind and, and expand my heart for who he is, that he is bigger than I even thought he was. See, oftentimes we think too small of God. And as he goes back to this to say, what is God doing? He's saying, well, God's, God's doing more than just my life. He's doing more than just something in my world. He is doing this huge thing. And so I can look to him even if I don't feel it. The person who discovered this probably more than anyone else was the prophet Jonah. And we know this because Jonah, if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah was called by God to preach and he said no, which is a bold move. That means you have a small view of God. If you say no to him, and he finds himself eventually, as he's running from God, in a whale, in the belly of a whale at the bottom of the ocean. Talk about a crisis moment in his journey. And what he prays, when you read Jonah 2, he actually prays Psalm 42, 7. Deep calls to deep. He's realizing that his view of God was too small. And now he sees, at the end of that prayer, he says, salvation belongs to to the Lord, that it is God who does things. And I need to trust Him rather than asking Him to do my bidding. So oftentimes what is happening is, is really when you're in that season of dryness or that wilderness where it feels like God is absent, one of the things that God is doing oftentimes is He wants to challenge our motivations. Why is it that you seek God? Like if someone asks you, what are you looking for in church this morning? 
Or what are you seeking? Or what are you, why are you following God? What are you looking for from God? What are you looking for from Jesus? What would you say? You see, this guy, for a while, he said, you know, I have, I have just emotional high. I have this connection to God. I feel good about God and how he feels about me. But he's now in this season where he's saying, am I going to look to God even when it doesn't feel good? So this was a question that a guy named Bernard wrestled with about a thousand years ago. It's a great name. Uh, Bernard wrote this small little book called On Loving God. I don't know how you write a small book on such a big topic, but he wrote this small little book because he was wrestling with this question. And he identified what he described as four degrees of love, or kind of four stages as we mature in our ability to love. The first stage is what he called love of self for self. This is where I love me because of me. All of us can do this. We are born selfish. We are born calling for someone to meet my needs. And so the most basic level of love that he defined was where I love myself for me. It's very self-centered and narcissistic. The second degree of love, the second stage of love he described is love of God for self. And he says this in his work that oftentimes we go through a storm or a, a season in which we realize that we are not adequate. Or we can't quite control our circumstances. And so oftentimes what happens is we look to God. But we look to God not for God, but for what God can give me. And so I find in God stability. Or I find in God forgiveness. Or belonging. Or community. Or purpose. And these are not bad things. But he's saying your motivation is still you. And so the third degree of love that he defined is when I learn to love God for God. When I learn to love God because God is God and he is good. He says this uh, in his writing. We have obtained this degree when we can say, give praise to the Lord for he is good, not because he is good to me, but because he is good. That God is good, and so therefore I love him. You see, it's not wrong to love God for the things that he gives you or the blessings that he gives you. But what will happen in a moment of dryness or when you feel like God's not answering your prayers is it is now a crisis where you're going to have to answer this question, why do I want God anyways? Do I want God or do I want God's stuff? And he says then after this, the fourth degree is then love of self for God's sake. That I now love myself, but not because I'm great, but because God is good and he has loved me and forgiven me. And so this is a a selfless self-acceptance, a freedom to love myself, not making a big deal about myself, but because of who God is. And so he is overwhelmed by this. This is why you look at verse eight. He says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. The daytime is when things are great. The nighttime is when things are dark and confusing. He says, God is God in every moment of my life. He's overwhelmed by the bigness of God. And this then leads to the last movement in Psalm 43. As we begin to see as he works through this process of what do I do when I feel like God's not there, there are two things that God is doing in him even when he doesn't necessarily see it or feel it. That when you go through a season where it feels like God is absent or you feel kind of spiritually dry and you're kind of becoming aware that I need a bigger view of God, here are two things that happen in us if we are willing 
to walk through this season. If we are willing to wait on God, as he says, the first thing that happens is that we have a growing desire for God. We have a growing desire for God. Uh, Look at 43 verse 4. It says this, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O my God. Now, flip back to 42 verse 4. Again, parallel. So these are similar ideas, but 42 verse 4, at the beginning of this journey, here's what he said. These things I remember, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now you'll notice as he's worked through this process, when he gets to Psalm 43 verse 4, it's less about the experience and more about God. It's less about the multitude and more about finding his joy in God. You see, one of the things that God works out in us when we go through a season of difficulty or dryness or seeming like God is absent is he wants to grow our desire for him. For him, not just his stuff. That he is good, and I learn that he's good regardless of my circumstances. How can I learn that? I can only learn that when I go through hard circumstances. I can only learn that when I go through difficult things. And so what happens, what God is often doing when you go through a season where it feels like he's absent, is he is purifying your desires for him. He says, I want you to want me. I want you to look to me. I want you to cling to me even when life is difficult. And so he's experiencing this growing desire for God and less for God's stuff. And so he says, God is my exceeding joy. I want God, even if I don't get his stuff. That's the first thing that happens as we lean into waiting on God when it feels like he's absent. The second thing is that not only do I experience a growing desire for God, but I experience a deepening dependence on God. A deepening dependence on God. If you read through 42, which we did just a few minutes ago, there are two points at which uh, the writer directly quotes his oppressors. He directly quotes those who are against him. They say, where is your God? You get this sense that in 42, the criticisms of his opponents are very loud in his ear. But what happens in 43 is now he turns and he never quotes his enemies. They still are there in the back of his mind. But you'll notice in 43, he says, vindicate me, O God. In other words, what is happening is he is becoming less defensive. He's becoming less focused on the criticisms or the critiques or the, the opposition that other people feel. And now he's saying, my trust and my dependence is on God even if people are going to criticize me, even if people are going to question me, my dependence is on God. You see, one of the things that God does when we're walking through a season where it feels like he's absent is he wants us to depend on him more, not less. You see, we live our natural lives going from dependence to independence. We're born dependent. I need someone to feed me and to change my diaper. And then we eventually work to this point where I can walk and then I can run, and I can own a business, and I can do all these independent kinds of things. And so we tend to believe that the trajectory of maturity in the way of faith is dependence to independence. And if you read through the Psalms, maturity in faith is actually independence to dependence. 
that the more you mature in faith, the more you follow Jesus, the more you will move not to independence, but dependence. Where I begin to realize that I need God every moment of my life. Look at verse 3. He says this, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. This is entirely passive language for him. I'm not seeking after God. I'm not searching God. God, I need you to bring me to you. See, because after all, this is the foundation of the gospel that we believe. The foundation of the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus, is not that I was able to get God's attention through my religious activity, but that I was not looking for God, and God acted for me, and I am entirely dependent on the work of Jesus to find forgiveness, salvation, and restoration. The heart of the gospel is not that I am independent, but that I am completely dependent on the love, the grace, and the forgiveness of God that he won for me in Jesus. Which is radically good news, and yet so hard for us to get because we are so stubbornly independent. And so how else will God get our attention if not to allow us to grow in dependence on him? And so if you're here this morning and you think, I just need to pray the right prayer or sing the right song or do the right behavior to get God's attention, you are heading the wrong direction. You find God when you realize God has already sought you out in Jesus. Which means that if you are here, and you're following Jesus, but you're in that season where it feels like God's not there. It doesn't mean that God has failed. It just means he's doing something new and you can't see it yet. And so if you're in that season this morning, I just want to encourage you with just three things. Three things from this text that you can do. Now the danger of this psalm is this, uh, that we live in a very technique-oriented world, and so if I give you three things to do, you would then go into your wilderness, you would go into the absence of God and say, I'm going to do these three things and then God's going to appear to me. Which is why the central message of this psalm is that the first thing that you can do when you are in a season of experiencing God's absence is to wait. That's it. Wait. How long? I don't know. Wait. You see, in the ESV, it translates that word hope. In other translations, it translates it as wait. Because those are two of the same ideas. That when I feel like I'm waiting, it is really refining and testing my hope. What actually am I hoping in? What actually am I waiting in? That what God might be doing in your life is he might be refining you by bringing you to a place where you cannot do anything except wait on him. And that is his goodness and his grace working in your life. But it's going to feel awful. Because we're impatient. I want it now. I want to door dash God's blessings to me today. Wait. Wait on him. God is doing something new in you, 
And oftentimes when we are in that season of waiting, in that season of the wilderness, he's doing his most important work to wait. A few years ago, I was in seminary class, and my professor uh, was a seasoned guy. He, he had started a church. He had started a nonprofit. Uh, he was a spiritual director. He was a counselor. The guy knew his stuff. Uh, and at the beginning of class, he asked each one of us, you know, we were pastors, we were training for ministry. He asked each one of us how long it had been since we felt the tangible presence of God. And we each went around, and for some people it was weeks, for some people it was months, for some people it was years. And he told us this, he said in his whole season of faith, 60-some years, he said he found himself in this later season of maturity, experiencing the presence of God in prayer about once every 40 days. So even this guy is teaching on prayer teaching on following Jesus, about once every 40 days, he felt that a time of prayer or scripture, he actually sensed that God was there. But then he said this. He says, what I don't know when I get up on a Tuesday is whether this is day two or day 39. In other words, I don't know today if today might be the day that God's going to reveal himself to me. Today might be day 39, and so if I commit to prayer and seeking the Lord today, it might be that tomorrow he's going to reveal himself to me. But it might be that today is day two, and I need to be faithful in this season as I wait on the Lord. But the one thing that is certain is even in my experience as I wait for him, he hasn't failed me. And so you don't know as you're waiting in the season of God's absence, you don't know if you're on day two or day 39. God does, and he's not going to let you go. So wait. The second thing when you're in a season of waiting is to explore your interior world. In this chorus, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He, he looks inward to begin to explore what were my expectations of God anyways. See, oftentimes what we experience when you go through a sense of God's absence is that God has to refine some things that I would not choose for him to refine if I was in charge. He wants to do some character stuff. He wants to do some stuff with my habits, my compulsions, my addictions, my way of relating to people. All the stuff that I like to put behind a nice face, that's the stuff that he wants to work on. And so oftentimes when you find yourself in a season where it feels like God is absent, an important way that we can work through that season is by exploring your interior world. What I mean by that is, is, what are your thoughts about God? What are the ways of relating that you've inherited from your family that maybe don't line up with Jesus? What are the expectations that you have about him? What are the, the deeper things about yourself and how you view yourself that God maybe wants to uproot? He explores his interior world and talks to his interior world. Say, okay, interior world, we need to move from this to hope in God. So part of the work that we need to do in this season is to explore that. That God wants to pull some things out of you that have deep roots in your guts because he loves you enough that he wants you to become who he wants you to be. The last thing, the last thing if you're in this season is to lean on others. To lean on others. Because we tend to be very narcissistic about how God works. And so when I'm in community, 
when I'm going through a season of dryness or a season where it feels like God is absent, I need to lean on other people. That I need to know that God is working in your life even if I don't feel it in my life. That I need to listen to other people and particularly to people who are a little bit further in the journey of faith than I am. I need to listen to people who are 20 or 30 years further down the road than I am because they've probably gone through this a couple times. Or me, I'm thinking I'm 34 years old, I got everything figured out. I have nothing figured out. I need to listen to people who are older than me. I need to listen to people in church history who have walked this road before, who can help me understand how does God work? Because God is working out our independence that we be dependent on him. And that includes in the context of community. So you might be here this morning and you feel like God's abandoned you. The riverbed is dried up. Doesn't mean that God has failed. Just means that he's doing a new thing. And you just can't see it yet. Let's seek him together. God, I know in this room there's difficulty, discouragement, struggle, questions, doubts. People who have been in the wilderness for a long time. God, we thank you that you are good. You are bigger than we imagine. And you want us to see you for how you really are, not how we imagine you to be. So God, for the one who's here this morning who's curious about the things of Jesus, maybe waiting for that that mountaintop moment, uh, God, would you meet them in that way? But would you also show them that the beginning of trusting in Jesus is admitting my dependence, that I need forgiveness, that you are good enough, you are good enough to offer grace and forgiveness? Would we be people who cling to you because you are good even if it doesn't feel like you're being good to us right now. Because you are good. And so we wait on you this morning. God, would you do the work that we don't want you to do? Would you do the work in my life that I resist you doing? Because I trust that you are better. And you have a better plan for my life than even I do. So God, would we lean on you this morning? Would we trust in you this morning? Pray all this in the name of Jesus, who died for us. Amen.